Chapter 5 of The Beloved Vagabond by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5. Recording by Simon Evers. It was the late afternoon of a sweltering July day. The near hills slumbered in the sunshine. Far away beyond them, grey peaks of alpine spurs, patched with snow, rose in faint outline against the sky. The valley lay in rich idleness, green and gold and fruitful, yielding itself with a maternal largeness to the white fifteenth-century chateau on the hillside. A long white road stretched away to the left, following the convolutions of the valley, until it became a thread. On the right it turned sharply by a clump of trees which marked a farm. In the middle of it all, in the grateful shadow cast by a wayside café, sat Parago and myself, watching with thirsty eyes the buxom but slatternly patron pour out beer from a bottle. A dirty long-haired mongrel terrier lapped water from an earthenware bowl at the foot of the wooden table at which we sat. This was Narcisse, a recent member of our vagabond family, whom my master had casually adopted some weeks before, and had christened according to some Lucas Anon Lucendo principle of his own. I think he was the least beautiful dog I have ever met, but I loved him dearly. Parico drained his tumbler, handed it back to be refilled, drained it again, and cleared his throat with the contentment of a man whose thirst has been slaked. "'Now one can spit!' he exclaimed heartily. "'That is always a comfort to a man,' remarked the patron. "'It is the potentiality that is the comfort. Have you apartments for the night, madame?' "'They are for des messieurs, for gentlemen,' said the patron diffidently. Narcisse, having also finished his draught, stretched himself out on the ground, his chin on his forepaws, and glanced furtively upwards at the disparaging lady. Trondelaire, cried Parigo, are we not gentlemen? Tiens, you are of the Midi, cried the woman, recognising the expletive, for no one born north of Avignon says Trondelaire. I too am from Marseille. My husband was a Savoyard. That is why I am here. I am a gentleman of Gascony, said my master, and this is my son Astico. It is a droll name, said the patron. We are commercial travellers on our rounds with samples of philosophy. It is a droll trade, said the patron. We were greasy and dirty, sunburnt to the colour of Egyptian fellaheen, and dressed in the peasant's blue blouse. Creatures more unlike professors of philosophy could not be conceived. But the patron seemed to be impressed, as who was not, by Parago. The rooms will be three francs, monsieur, she said, after a calculating pause. I engage them, said my master. Astico, add madame to take our luggage up to our bedchambers. I grasped my bundle and handed Parigot's dilapidated canvas gripsack to the patron. He arrested her. Uh, one moment, madame. As you see, my portmanteau contains a shirt, a pair of socks, a comb and a toothbrush. Also, a copy of the works of the divine vagrant Maitre François Villon, which I will take out at once. He was a thief and a reprobate, and got nearer hanged than any man who ever lived, and he is the dearest friend I have. You have the royal friends, remarked the patron, continuing her litany. And to think that he died four hundred years ago, sighed my master. Isn't it strange, madame, that all the bravest men and most beautiful women are those that are dead? The landlady laughed. You talk like a true Gascon, monsieur. In this country people are so silent that one loses the use of one's tongue. 
I departed with her to see after domestic arrangements, and when I returned, I found Parigo smoking his porcelain pipe and talking to a dusty child in charge of a goat. Having, at that period, a soul above dusty children in charge of goats, I sprawled on the ground beside Marcisse, and, being tired by the day's tramp, fell into a doze. The good earth, when you have a casing of it already on clothes and person, is a comfortable couch, but I think you must be in your teens to enjoy it. I awoke to the sound of Paligot's voice talking to Narcisse. The goat child had slipped away. An ox cart laden with hay lumbered past. The mellowness of late afternoon lay over the land. The shadow cast by the little white cafe had deepened gradually far beyond the table. From within the house came the faint clatter of footsteps and cooking utensils. Parigot was still smoking. Narcisse sat on his haunches, his ill-shaped head to one side and his ears cocked. After making a vicious dig at a flea, he yawned and trotted about after the manner of his kind in search of adventure. Parigot summoned him back. My good Narcisse, every spot on the earth has its essential quality, which the wise man, or dog, knows how to enjoy in its entirety. In great cities where life is pulsating around you, you are alert for the unexpected. The underlying principle of a world's backwater like this is restful stagnation. Here you must wallow in the uneventful. In vain you sniff around, in quest of the exciting, mistaking like your fellow in the fable the shadow for the substance. The substance here is rest. Here nothing ever happens. Pardon, monsieur, said a voice close upon us. Is it very far to Chambry? It does not matter, said a second voice, following hard on the first, for I can go no further. I jumped to my feet, and my master started round in his chair. The first speaker was a girl, the second an old man. She had merely the comeliness of tanned and hair-bleached peasant youth. He was wizened, lined, browned, and bent. A cotton umbrella shaded the girl's bare head, and she carried in her hand a cane valise covered with grey canvas. The old man was burdened with two ancient shabby cases, one evidently containing a violin, and the other some queerly shaped musical instrument. Both the newcomers were wayworn and dirty, and my master, seeing suffering on the old man's face, rose and courteously offered him a chair. "'Sit down and rest,' said he. "'Mademoiselle, you are thinking of going to Chambry? But it is nearly a day's journey on foot.' "'We have to play at a wedding tomorrow, monsieur,' said the girl piteously. "'It was arranged two months ago, and we must get there in some manner.' "'There is a railway station not far off.' said I. Alas, we have only ten sous in the world, which is not enough to pay for our tickets, she answered. Imagine, monsieur, I had a piece of twenty francs in my pocket this morning, and I went to the station to get a ticket, for I had counted on going by railway, as my grandfather is so ill. And when I came to pay, I found I had lost my louis. How the bon Dieu only knows. It is desolating, monsieur. We had to walk so as to keep our engagement at Chambry. If we miss it, nous sommes dans la purée pour tout de bon. To be in the purée is to be in a very bad mess indeed. The prospect of abject pennilessness filled the damsel's eyes with woe. You earn your living by playing at weddings for folks to dance? asked my master. Yes, monsieur. My grandfather plays the violin and either zither. We also go to fairs. In the winter we play at cafes in large towns. 
Life is hard, monsieur, is it not? She closed her umbrella and laid it on the valise. The old man sat by the table, his head resting on his hands, saying nothing. When I think of my good Louis that is gone, she added tragically. The only feature making for charm in a coarse, homely face was a set of white, even teeth. I found her singularly unattractive. A tear rolled down her cheek, and its course was that of a rill in a dusty plain. Suppose I lent you the money for the railway tickets, said my master kindly. Oh, monsieur, she cried, I should thank you from the depths of my heart. Grandpère, she turned to the old man, who, ashen-faced, was staring in front of him. Monsieur will lend us enough money to get to Chambéry. I can go no further, he murmured. Then his eyelids quivered, his body moved spasmodically, and he swayed sideways off the chair onto the ground. We rushed to aid him. The girl put his head on her lap. My master bade me run into the café for brandy. When I returned, the old man was dead. Narcisse sat placidly by with his tongue out, eyeing his master ironically. You are the man, his glance implied, who said that nothing happens here. I have known many dogs in my life, but never so mocking and cynical a dog as Narcisse. It was nearly midnight before my master and I sat down again outside the café. The intervening hours had been spent in journeying to and from the nearest village and obtaining the necessary services of doctor and curé. My master was smoking his porcelain pipe as usual, but strangely silent. A faint circle of light came from the open ground-floor window of the café. The white road gleamed dimly, and beyond the hushed valley the hills loomed vague against a black, starlit sky. In the lighted room a few peasants from neighbouring farms drank their sour white wine and discussed the death in low voices. In other circumstances my master would have joined them under pretext of getting nearer the heart of life, and would have told them amazing tales of Ekaterinoslav or Valadilid till they reeled home drunk with wine and wonder. And I should have been abed. But tonight Parago seemed to prefer the silent company of Narcisse and myself. What do you think of it all, Astico? he asked at length. Of what, master? Death. It frightens me, was all I could answer. What I resent about it, said my master reflectively, is that one is not able to have any personal concern in the most interesting event in one's career. If you could even follow your own funeral and have a chance of weeping for yourself. You are never so important as when you are a corpse, and you miss it all. I have a good mind not to die. It is either the silliest or the wisest action of one's life. I wonder which. Presently, the girl came down the passage of the café, stood for a moment in the doorway, and seeing Parago, advanced to the table. You are very kind, monsieur, she said, and for what you have done I thank you from my heart. It was very little, said my master. Astico, why do you not give mademoiselle your chair? Your manners are worse than those of Narcisse. Mademoiselle, do me the pleasure of being seated. She sat down, her feet apart, peasant fashion, her hands in her lap. If I had not lost the twenty francs, he would not have died, she said dejectedly. He would have died if you had brought him here in a carriage. He had aneurysm of the heart, the doctor says. He might have died any moment in the last ten years. How old was he? Seventy, eighty, ninety, how should I know? 
but he was your grandfather. I know indeed, monsieur, she replied in a more animated manner. He was not a relative. My mother was poor, and she sold me to him three years ago. Why, that is like me, master, I cried, vastly interested. My son, said he in English, that is one of the things that must be forgotten. And then, mademoiselle, he asked in French, then he taught me to play the zither and to dance. I am sorry he is dead. Dame, oh, pour exemple. But I do not weep for him. As for a grandfather, oh, no. And your mother? She died last year, so I am all alone. He asked her what she thought of doing for her livelihood. She shrugged her shoulders with the resignation of her class. I can always earn my living. There are brasseries, café concerts in all the towns. I am fairly well known. They will give me an engagement. Il faut passer par la comme les autres. You must go through it like the others, repeated my master. But you are very young, my poor child. I am eighteen, monsieur. I know I shall not make a fortune. I am not pretty enough even when I paint, and my figure is heavy. That is what Père Parigo used to complain of. What was his name? asked my master, pricking up his ears. Basilius Parigo, and he took the name of Nibidard, which means no luck. So he loved to call himself Basilius Nibidard Parigo. Brazilius Nibidard Parago, mouthed my master joyously. I would give anything for a name like that. It is yours if you like to take it, she said quite seriously. No one will want it any more. Little Lastico of my heart, said he, what do you think of it? It struck me as a most aristocratically romantic appellation. I was used to his aliases by this time. He had long ceased to call himself Pradle, and what was our surname for the moment I am now unable to recollect. "'You look like Parago, master,' said I. And in an inexplicable way he did, as I have before remarked. He called me a psychometrical genius, and inquired the name of the young lady. "'Amélie Duprat, monsieur,' she said. "'But pour le métier, we must have professional names for the cafés. Père Parago called me Blanquette de Vaux.' <laughs> "'Delicious!' cried he. "'So everyone calls me Blanquette,' she explained gravely. There was a silence. Parago, he really assumed the name from this moment, refilled his pipe. The belated peasants, having finished their wine, clattered out of the café and took off their hats as they passed us. "'Life is very hard, is it not, monsieur?' remarked Blanquette. It seemed to be her favourite philosophic proposition. She sighed. "'If Père Parago had only lived to play at the wedding tomorrow—' "'What then? I should have had ten francs.' "'Ah!' said my master. First I lose my louis, and now I lose my ten francs. Ha! <laughs> Sainte Vierge de Misericorde! It was heartrending. Sometimes they received more than the stipulated fee at these village weddings. They passed the hat round. If the guests were mellow with good wine, which makes folk generous, they often earned double the amount. And they always had as much as they liked to eat, and could take away scraps in a handkerchief. And good wholesome nourishment, monsieur. Once it was half a goose. Now there was nothing, nothing. Blanquette did not believe in the bon Dieu any longer. She buried her face in her arms and wept. Parago smoked helplessly for a few moments. I, unused to women's tears, felt the desolation of the race of Blanquette de Vaux overspread me. Not that I considered it to be beneath my dignity as a man. I should have wept too. Suddenly Parago brought his fist down on the table and started to his feet. 
Blanquette lifted a scared white face, dimly seen in the half-light. "'Tonnerre de Dieu!' cried he. "'If you hold so much to your ten francs and half a goose, I myself will come you to Chambery to-morrow and fiddle at the wedding.' "'You, monsieur?' she gasped. "'Yes, I. Why not? Do you think I can't scrape catgut as well as Père Parigot?' He walked to and fro, declaring his musical powers in his boastful way. If he chose, he could rip out the hearts of a dead municipal council with a violin, and could set a hospital for paralytics a-dancing. He would have fiddled the children of Hamelin away from the Pied Piper. Didn't Blanquette believe him? But yes, monsieur, she said fervently. Ask Astico. My faith in him was absolute. To my mind he had even understated his abilities. Experience of the disillusioning years has since caused me to modify my opinions. But Parago's boastfulness has not lessened him in my eyes. And this leads to a curious reflection. When a Gascon boasts, you love him for it. When a Prussian does it, your toes tingle to kick him to Berlin. His very whimsical braggadocio made Parago adorable, and I am at a loss to think what he would have been without it. Of course, said he, if you are proud, if you don't want to be seen in the company of a scarecrow like me, there is nothing more to be said. Blanquette humbly repudiated the charge of pride. Her soul was set on her ten francs, and she didn't care how she got them. She accepted Monsieur's generous offer out of a full heart. That sense, said my master, we shall rehearse at daybreak. End of chapter five.